0: My name is Josh. I'm one of the uh, leaders here at Christchurch. It's my uh, privilege this morning to um, be uh, able to teach uh, some of the Bible to you this morning. Um, Do keep that passage open in front of you. Um, I hope you'll find it helpful to to follow along as we go through it this morning. Uh, Now there's a Chinese phrase, I'd like to start by being all cultured and say there's an ancient Chinese proverb, but it's not an ancient Chinese proverb, it's just a Chinese phrase, and it is uh, roughly translated into English as watching the flowers from horseback. It's it's got a nice phrase, because when I tell you what it means, it'll make sense and it's quite intuitive. Um, It means that you take an overview of something, but without ever really getting the chance to um, get up close and personal. It's trying to work out what something means just by taking in some of the uh, superficial facts that you can see. You're you're on your horse, you're sprinting through a meadow, you look out, you can see flowers, but you don't have a chance to really look closely, to see which flowers are which, and to see exactly what's where. Now if you were here um, back in the autumn, if you were at Christchurch back then, uh, you might remember that we have already had a series on Revelation this year, and what we were doing in that series was watching the flowers from horseback. What we were looking to do in our previous series on Revelation was um, to take an overview of the whole book. We looked at some of the headline themes, and because the book can be quite hard to understand, then we looked at the whole structure of the whole book. We said that you can understand it in three parts. Um, that at the start, there are seven letters to seven churches, and the number seven in Revelation represents completeness. So that is letters to all churches at all times. Uh, the middle part of the book of Revelation, we said, divides into four sets of seven. The man called John, who had the vision of Revelation, he had a vision that involved seven seals on a scroll. He had a vision that involved seven trumpets. He saw seven signs, and he saw a vision that involved seven bowls. And we said that those sets of seven represent the whole of human history, but each of them looking at it from different angles. And where human history is headed is a third part of the book of Revelation, which is the end. And in the end, there is a final judgment, a final victory, and a final city. Now, that's the overview. That is the view of Revelation from horseback. What we're going to be doing over the next six weeks is stopping the horse, getting out of the saddle, and having a closer look at some of the key themes that come up in the book. And in particular, we're going to look at some passages around the theme of heaven and earth. In chapter 4, verse 1, John sees a door standing open in heaven. Now, uh, as we go through the book, we're going to find that, some, that John is looking back and forth through this door. Sometimes John is going to be looking through this door, and he is going to be looking right into heaven. Other times, John's going to be the other side of the door, and he'll be looking through the door and having a look at events on earth, but from heaven's perspective. And all the way through the series, we're going to be asking the question, what does that have to do with this? When we're looking through the door into heaven, we're going to ask, what do these events in heaven have to do with the challenges that we face of being a Christian in our life here on earth? But when John is looking through the door at events on earth, we're going to ask, and this is quite remarkable, we're going to be able to ask, how is it that events on earth, the things that we do, How is it that they can have any effect on what is going on in heaven? Just to clue you in on uh, how we're going to do it, when Ken is preaching in this series, he's going to be looking through the door into heaven. And when I'm preaching in this series, we're going to be looking through the door into events on earth. Except for today. In today's passage, Revelation 1, John hasn't seen the door yet. And so we get a big overlap between heaven and earth. At times today, we are going to be looking up into heaven, but other times we're going to be looking down onto earth. This, um, as Naomi read for us in verses 1 to 3, this is a message from heaven to earth. It's a message from God to Jesus Christ to an angel. But the angel brings that message from heaven to earth, the angel tells John, and John tells all of us. So as we we read the introduction this morning, we're going to be looking at heaven. We're going to be looking up to see the God who is, the God who is in heaven. We're going to be looking at earth and we're going to see the God who was, the God who was in history. And we're going to look forward to a day when heaven meets earth. And we're going to see the God who is to come. Well, before we do that, let me pray for us as we really get stuck into the passage. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray for the help of your Spirit to open our eyes as we look at your word today, and we pray particularly that you will give us a vision of yourself as you really are. We pray that as we look upon you, you would make us into people who um, really listen to what you have to say. You'd make us into people who, who really take seriously what you think make us into people whose delight it is to love and serve you. I pray that as we look at you this morning, you would show yourself to us. And we would be transformed. Amen. (coughs) We're going to start by looking up into heaven. We're going to see the God who is, the God who is in heaven. Come back with me 2,000 years um, and to Western Turkey, to the place that used to be known as the province of Asia, and to the original recipients of this message. Message, of course, from heaven to earth, and the first people on earth to read the book of Revelation were these seven churches, as verse 4 says, the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, what's about to follow in chapters 2 and 3 Uh, There are going to be seven individual letters to these seven individual churches. And in each of those letters, they're going to be commended for something that they're doing quite well. But then in the letters, Jesus is going to say to each of them, there's something that you're going to need to do. There's something that you're going to need to put right if you're going to be the kind of church I've put you there to be. It's going to be a difficult reading for the churches. How are they going to respond? Well, some of the churches might respond by saying, how dare you say that we need to change things? The church in Laodicea, for example, they say, we are rich, we need nothing. The church in Sardis, they would got a reputation. So these churches might want to say to Jesus, how dare you say that we need to put things right? Some other churches... Well, they are under a lot of pressure. They might say, how can you say that we need to put things right? We are struggling so much. You don't know what we're going through. We're facing an awful lot. Somehow, these churches may be able to find a reason why they don't want to listen to Jesus. The issue that's going to be at stake for these churches is, does it really matter to them what Jesus thinks of their church? some examples just briefly, because we're not going to look at chapter two and three, but some examples that the church in Sardis had a reputation. Their reputation was for being alive. Maybe that meant that they had lively worship. Maybe it meant they had vibrant connect groups or um, great kids work. For the church that's got a reputation for being alive, do they really care what Jesus thinks about their church? The church in Ephesus, they didn't tolerate false teaching, so their doctrine was absolutely spot on. They had sound teaching, sound doctrine. For a church that has excellent Bible teaching, does it really matter to them what Jesus thinks of their church? Now, these are seven letters to seven churches. It's for all churches at all times. That's what we said. So let me put it to you. Does it really matter to you what Jesus thinks of our church. It may be that, that you really like it here at Christchurch. It may be that you enjoy coming on a Sunday or you love your Connect group or think the kids' work is brilliant or the music. Well, you might like it, but do you care what Jesus thinks of our church? It may be that you're somebody who thinks that we could change a lot. And you might want to sit down with us, and you might be one of the people who sends emails to staff and elders and wanting to talk about how we can bring change to this church. Well, you know how you'd like the church to be, but does it matter to you what Jesus thinks of our church? Well, we are only going to listen to what Jesus says. And we're only going to respond rightly to this message from heaven to earth, if we care what Jesus thinks. And for that to happen, we are going to need to see him as he is. And that is why, before John gets to the letters to the churches, he includes chapter 1, he includes a preamble, a bit of an introduction. And in this introduction, John is going to show us God as he really is. Because when you see God as he is, you will think that what he thinks is the be-all and end-all, because he is the be-all and end-all. Have a look at verse 4. We've got this phrase, him who is, who was, and who is to come. We were saying that earlier. That's not simply uh, just a statement of God's longevity, that he was there in the past, he's going to be there in the future. This is a phrase that, that John uses to describe eternity. Some commentaries tell us that this is a similar kind of phrase to how God described himself when he revealed his name to his people in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. He said, my name is I am, or I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. God is saying, I'm self-defining. I'm self-existent. There is nothing outside of me That makes me what I am. There's nothing outside of me that shapes what I am or constrains me to be what I am. I am. There is the creator and there is the things that he's created and nothing else. And God is the creator. He is. He determines himself. He was, he is, he is to come. He's timeless. In fact, it doesn't put it like that. It says he is, he was, he is to come almost seems like it's the wrong order, because time is not a factor in God's thinking. He is eternal. And in these verses, we see God the Father on the throne. We see the seven spirits before the throne. I think we can take that to mean God the Holy Spirit, because as well as seeing God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, we also get introduced to a third person. Uh, We see God the Son. Jesus Christ, in verse 5, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. This introduction is a marvelous introduction, because this letter is written to people who were possibly facing the prospect of death because of their faith. And this tells us it's a letter from the person who has gone into death, who has taken it on, who's won, who's triumphed over death and risen from the grave. It's a letter to people who are quite intimidated and crushed by local rulers and authorities and kings. But this introduction tells us this is a letter from the one who rules all those kings on earth. When we see who this letter is from, it is going to change how we respond to it. I don't know if you have ever kept um, any letters from your past. My suspicion is if you have, it's because of who it was from. I've got a box of mementos. I've got a letter I keep from the past. Um, It is a letter that invites me to a day of rugby trials from when I was 16. And I kept the letter because it's a letter that is from the WRU. That is the National Welsh Rugby Association. Uh, Don't bother trying to look carefully at that. That's not the actual letter. Um, I'm just ripping off someone else's letter. But it, it did have the crest at the top The same badge that the Wales rugby players wear on their chest was on my letter. It was a letter from the WRU inviting me to have trials for Wales. I've got a letter from the be-all and end-all of rugby in Wales. That is in my mementos box and I'm keeping that. This letter from Revelation is from the author of the best-selling book of all time. It's from the one who is going to decide the outcome of our general election. This is a letter from the one who's got Donald Trump and King Jong-un under his thumb. It's from the I am. It's from the king on the throne. It's from the one who's triumphed over death. It's from the ruler of the kings of the world. This is a letter from the Alpha, the Omega, the be-all and end-all. I want us to have that vision of God today so that it matters to us what he thinks of us. So that we are ready to listen to what he has to say. And so that we're ready to respond rightly to him. But as well as pointing us upward, John also points us to earth. And he points us back. He points us to the God who was. The God who was in history. At this point... As we turn our eyes to earth, we actually find ourselves in the picture. Have a look um, at these verses and notice what it says about us. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. So verses four and five teach us something amazing about the God who's giving this letter. These verses tell us something amazing about ourselves. It tells us that we are loved. Because we're loved, we've been freed. There was something standing between us and God. We've been freed from that. We've been freed for a purpose that we might have the joy and privilege of worshipping and serving Him. Uh, this is the, the sort of language that is also used in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Uh, the nation of Israel had been kept as slaves in Egypt. But when they were slaves, God loved them. And he sent uh, an amazing display of power. Uh, he sent plagues on Egypt. And in the final plague, the, the deal was that Israel would be freed if they trusted in the death of a lamb and trusted in the blood of the lamb above their doorposts. Israel were loved and they were freed. But once they were freed, they just went out into the wilderness. And that didn't seem like such a good thing. But that's not the end of the story. God not only freed them, but he brought them to himself. And he said to them, I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to make you a kingdom kingdom. He used the phrase that is on the screen. I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. He was going to give them unique access to him. Of all the countries in the world, this was going to be a people with unique access to him and the privilege to draw near and serve him and worship him. Now, what's amazing is that, according to Revelation 1, that is this, that's true of Christians, Out of sheer grace, I don't know any other reason why, out of sheer grace, God has loved us. But what held us, what trapped us, what stopped us from approaching God, our sin, well, he's freed us from that because he sent us a lamb. In fact, in Revelation, the word that John uses for Jesus most of all is the lamb. God loved us. He sent us a lamb who would die for us. And if we trust in his blood, we are freed. But that's not the end of our story. We get the privilege now of drawing close to God in worship and serving. We've got unique access to God like never before. Do you ever think of yourself like that? Did you know? that God had a purpose when he saved you. He wanted to make you into a priest. He wanted to give you access to him so that you could come before him and serve and worship. Well, that truth says something about the significance of what we do in the here and now. If... uh, if, you don't, if you're not really into technical stuff, perhaps now is the time to tune out, but set an alarm because you're not going to want to miss what comes after this because it's brilliant. Um, but for those of you who want to listen, the, um, I'm going to tell you about the tabernacle. See, Israel were drawn near to God in this tent called the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, it was meant to be a copy of uh, the reality in heaven. Uh, heaven is the place where God is given right worship. So the tabernacle was going to be a copy of that. You had the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, That is on the picture, the thing that's right at the back that's shining. Um, The Ark of the Covenant, the top of it, symbolized God's throne because God's presence would come and live on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And in front of the Ark of the Covenant, there was a lamp, a lampstand with seven lamps on it. And the person who would uh, do his business or go about. Well, that's the wrong phrase. Um, who'd go about his business in in that tabernacle was the priest. You've got the I am on the throne. Before the throne, you have the seven lamps, and you have the priest. Well, that sounds familiar from verses four and five that we read before. We have. The one, who is and is, uh, who, the one who is and who was and who is to come on the throne. Before the throne, there are seven spirits. And we have Jesus as the priest. This, these verses in Revelation take us back into the tabernacle. But here is why verse 6 is mind-blowing. And if you did tune out, now you need to come back in because this is brilliant. If we are priests, if that's what it says, if we are priests then when we serve and worship God, we are copying the heavenly reality here on earth. See, if we're living out our priestly calling as we live lives of worship, loving other people, making Christ known, and singing praises to God's name, we're bringing heaven to earth. We're making Earth a place where God is worshipped rightly. That's amazing. That the God who is in heaven became the God who was in history, and He acted in history through the person of Jesus, so that we could act out heaven on earth. Let me tell you about um, Yusuf. Yusuf had um, he'd been brought up as a Muslim. His view of God was as a distant, impersonal and demanding God. The first time he entered a church building, he wasn't really particularly interested. He knew very little about Christianity. But what he saw was a group of people who were offering authentic praise and worship out of a heart that loved God and called him Father, and when he saw that glimpse of heaven on earth, he was persuaded. And on that day, he committed to being a Christian. Let me tell you about Sally. Sally was a recent graduate. She had a wavering faith. She got a new job, so she moved jobs, she moved towns. And because of that, she really stopped going to church. Out of curiosity, a few months Later, she decided to pop into her local church to see what it was like. And she was really struck by how much the people there showed love and sacrificial care for some of the weak people in their church. Particularly the old people and people who were disabled. People who couldn't give anything back. She was gripped by that. She saw there was something different. And she kept going back to the Bible to find out what was different about these people. She didn't know it, but she had seen heaven on earth. We are made to be priests. It's our privilege to serve God and worship him. Because as we do, we are bringing heaven to earth. But of course, as we do that, we're only doing that in microcosm. It's real, but it is only for a short space of time and in a small space. But John points us forward to the day when heaven really will come to earth, and he points us to the God who is to come. Have a look at verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Does this verse strike you as a little bit odd? If John is talking about a day when heaven's going to come to earth, surely you'd think he's going to describe it as a glorious day. Isn't this a day when all wrong is made right? Why do you think John has used this strange phrase? The, all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. I think it is a little bit like my violin lessons. Not that my violin playing makes all the nations on earth mourn. Um, but when I was young, I had a, a great violin teacher called Mrs. Conway. She's a superb teacher. I have a lot of respect for her. But she was a little bit scary. You see, she expected us to practice for half an hour every day. And she could tell if we had. From one week to the next, she would listen to how we're playing and she would be able to identify if we've been doing what we should have been doing. From time to time, we'd have these performances where uh, there'd be a little show and we'd have to stand up and do a solo in front of all the parents of kids who were being taught the violin. And that day was the real test of whether we'd done our practicing or not. That day was either going to be a day of um, wonderful affirmation and recognition for what I've been doing, or it was going to be a day day of embarrassment and shame. See, if I just spent all my evenings playing computer games and watching TV, well, then I was going to be exposed when I stood in front of the parents. All those hours playing on Mario would not have helped me. (laughs) All that time I'd invested in getting to the next level of Sonic the Hedgehog, well, that was just going to be a waste of time. When John points us to Jesus coming, there is this warning that all people on earth, all peoples on earth will mourn because a world that is opposed to God invests in systems and societies that on that last day are just going to be a waste of time if you're a Christian, the fact that you have the privilege of bringing heaven to earth when you worship is not just an occasional luxury. That should be your life's occupation. Because on the day that heaven meets earth, everything else you've invested in, will just be seen to be nothing. For folks in some of the seven churches in Asia this would have been a great comfort because they were investing their lives in the worship of God and serving his church and making him known. But all they were met with was people who just sneered and mocked. For some other people in these seven churches, this would have been a real wake-up call because in order to avoid the grief that comes with following Jesus in a world that's opposed to him, they had compromised a little. And they'd started to take on board the beliefs and behaviours of the world around them. How do you need to hear this today? If you're faithfully serving God, if you love him and serve him and love worshipping him, well then take heart, because one day every eye will see him. And it'll be your privilege to worship and serve him face to face? Or is this a wake-up call to you? Do you call yourself a Christian, but you've just bought into the allure of career or pleasure or fulfillment or family? Are you investing in something that on that day, when every eye sees him, is just going to make you mourn? If you're not a Christian here today, please do consider this, that there is a God who is to come. And do you see that when he comes, everything that you've given your life to, well, it'll be seen to be just a big waste of time. Because if you're not among those people who are trusting in Jesus to be brought near to God, then that day is going to be a day when you mourn. But until he comes... He hasn't come yet until he comes that door is still open for you to come to him so i urge you today to recognize the god who is the be all and end all and join us in the privilege of getting to love and serve and worship him we get to do that because we rely on Jesus' death in history as the thing that takes away the sin that stands between us and god I want to finish this morning by returning to the bit that we haven't really covered yet, the end of verse 6. You see, when you see God, uh, when you look up to heaven, when you look back into history, when you look forward and see the God who is, who was, and who is to come. And when you read that his great purpose in history is to make us priests, whose delight and joy it is to stand before him and worship. Then I don't know about you, but I just want to make the most of that privilege. I want to bring heaven to earth. I want to lift my voice in worship. And I want to say to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. I want to sing to him be glory forever. Uh, Glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing his glories.